I say watch, you know what I'm talking about, right? Right. They know. They know. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM People Powered Radio in LA. In Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast at 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul. On the great AM950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And yep, coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. You can run. But you can't hide. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. I am your fr- uh, your uh, friendly. What do I say, Des? <laughs> I think you say that you're the friendly citizen, blogger, journalist, muckraker, and troublemaker, and all around swell fellow. Says you from Bradblog.com. Oh, that too. Well done. Uh, that, of course, is Desi Doyan, our producer. She is swell as well. Says me. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, I'll start with some good news here because it's all downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, no, it's not. I don't want to. Then you'll go away. You'll get the good news. You'll you'll go away. You'll you don't want to be depressed by everything else. Well, you won't be. Everything else will be fandamtastic. But the most fandamtastic of them all is this a huge fire, Desi Doyen, that uh, you started reporting on. We started reporting on here on the show and on the Green News Report uh, last week that just exploded near uh, Los Angeles here up in San Bernardino County, uh, the Blue Cut Fire. Yes. That basically <laughs> sort of cut off the, the the pretty much the only route between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. It exploded in this tinderbox that is Southern California right now after five years of drought. Uh, the good news here is that as of today, according to Cal Fire, the uh, state fire agency, that fire is now at 100 percent containment. Yay. Yay, indeed. That's good news. And that's a surprise, frankly, because this was what what did it explode to something like 50 square miles off the. Yes, you know, almost, right off the bat. Almost within 24 hours, I think it was. The uh, Cal Fire now says 36,274 acres were burned. And yes, (laughs) that's the good news today. Uh, I'm sorry to say Uh, the good news being that it is now contained, at least for now. And we're not even into the peak of fire season out here in California. So fingers crossed that things don't get much, much worse out here. Uh, But I don't know. Uh, We will see what happens. In the meantime, speaking of things getting worse, President Obama visited the uh, the flood sites today in uh, in Baton Rouge. 
the uh, amazing flooding that happened there over the past week or two, just historic uh, flooding. I remember when that story broke uh, initially, not that the rest of the media even took notice of it. But when right. it broke, the first thing I had seen about it was um, 48 hours 20 what was it 24 inches of rain two feet of rain in 48 hours yes which is just insane absolutely insane well the uh the media has finally at least taken some notice president obama as i said was there today uh apparently the uh, response from fema is going well he points folks to fema.gov for more information uh, but also to uh, a website where people can donate uh, outside of FEMA, both donate and volunteer, uh, work to volunteer on the efforts that are going on down there. And they're going to go for a while because we're talking about some 60,000 homes that were damaged in this monster storm that I guess because it didn't have a name because our media only covers storms if you name them or something. <laughs> Never mind that uh, tens of thousands of uh, of citizens have uh, residents have been pushed out of their homes, have had their homes damaged, 60,000 of them at this point. Uh, if there's no name on it, we can't be bothered. We got to go cover the Olympics and uh, and Donald Trump. Anyway, uh, for a website, if you'd like to help the effort that is going on down there in in Louisiana, www.volunteerlouisiana. Dot gov. That was the address that uh, Obama gave during his brief remarks uh, not long ago. And I found out when I tried to go to volunteerlouisiana.gov, it didn't work. You had to have the www at the beginning. Yes. Ho- hopefully they fix that. Right. And it's also really important. He pointed out that there are lots of local organizations that also could use support. You know, there are church groups, there are community groups, there are nonprofit, non-governmental organizations that are also there to help out. You know, so, so yes, you can give to the national organizations, but paying attention to the local organizations will also be extremely helpful. Indeed, and we'll have more on the uh, Louisiana flooding coming up in our Green News Report a little bit later in the program. Uh, More on the uh, the criticism of the media and their response to that disaster and uh, the fact that, oh, here's some fun news. That flooding may help spread Zika virus even more along the Gulf Coast. So everybody gets to share the party. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Global warming? What global? What what problems from global warming? Don't worry about it. Uh, Also, speaking of problems from global warming, uh, uh, (laughs) remarkable uh, tale, as you call it, as a tale of two Arctics. Uh, Some two different stories. Same melting Arctic. Uh, going on that we'll we'll talk about in our Green News report, one of which you had a kind of a remarkable response to. We'll see if we have time a little bit for that a little bit later in our Green News report. But uh, before then, oh, hey, look, says Marcus Molitsis of the Daily Coast. The GOP is drowning. Throw them an anvil. Stat. <laughs> Uh, I think he may be a little too excited about this, um, but uh, Marcus Melitsis, for people who don't know, is a you know dyed-in-the-wool Democrat. He's very excited about uh, Donald Trump's uh, the polls showing that Donald Trump is not doing very well against Hillary Clinton. Uh, he says uh, the news for the GOP is brutal. We all know about the top of the ticket, but the lesser-known story is how much it's killing them down ballot. For example, he says. 
The GOP House fundraising has fallen off a cliff. House Republicans raised just $4.6 million in July, half of what they raised in June. Democrats, in the meantime, have, raved, have raised 12 effing million, he says. Uh, Senate Republicans raised just $4.2 million in July. That's compared to $7.5 million, almost twice as much for Senate Democrats. Those Senate Democrats have $31.5 million in the bank, compared to just $23.8 million for Republicans. He says because of Donald Trump and exacerbated by his claims of a, quote, rigged election, Republican voter enthusiasm is uncharacteristically down. He says Dems have opened up a five-point lead in the generic House ballot. That's basically, you know, when they ask Americans, uh, you know, who, who would you like to control the House, Republicans or Democrats? Well, now Democrats have a five-point lead in that generic uh, polling question. He says that is close to the point that overcomes the Republican gerrymander of the U.S. House. Really? We'll see. We'll talk uh, about that, I suspect, in coming days. Uh, for those uh, who watch this sort of thing, you'll remember back in 2014. No, wait, what year is this? 2012, the last presidential election, the uh, Democrats got uh, more than a million more votes for House members than did Republicans. But because of the way the Republicans have uh, gerrymandered House districts around the country, uh, Republicans were able to keep control of the U.S. House back in 2012. But in any, in any event, Coase uh, says, uh, yeah, the House is in play. And he says that's why Republicans are reaching new levels of panic. I think, as I said, that uh, 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 Marcos Melitsis may be a little bit too giddy for his own good, for the good of his own party. But we will see. And indeed, Republicans are in uh, in a bit of a panic. Marcus says they're in deep, deep trouble and nothing suggests things will get better for them. But they are in a panic. And that's one of the reasons why they've been taking the measures to try to keep people from voting that we've been uh, covering on this program for so long. But certainly in the last few days, uh, weeks, as the uh, the fights continue in courtrooms and around the country and in counties around the country. But in the meantime, there is a serious crisis of confidence in our electoral system overall that affects both Republicans and Democrats, frankly. Uh, I've long argued that that crisis in the electoral system is in itself a crisis for American democracy. New poll out on Friday finds that only 11 percent, 11 percent of Donald Trump supporters said they were very, quote, very confident that votes across the country will be counted accurately in the upcoming election. Just 11 percent, according to that new Pew survey, while half of his backers say they are, quote, not too confident or not confident at all that those votes will be counted correctly. The findings come after weeks of Trump's uh, comments in campaign speeches and in interviews that if he lost to Hillary Clinton, it's because the election was rigged. How it will be rigged has been somewhat unclear when it comes to uh, his claims about that. But, uh, you know, sometimes he claims with absolutely no evidence in support that voters will somehow be able to vote 10 times in places where there are uh, uh, where, where these strict photo ID voting restrictions have been knocked down. 
I don't think he understands how voting works. Makes you wonder if he's ever cast a vote himself, if he thinks that the same person can walk into the polling place and vote 10 times in the same place. But in any event, that has long been a Republican dog whistle for uh, black and Hispanic people are voting too much. Stop them any way you can. Now, despite an attempt to reach out to minority voters over the past several days, uh, we talked about it on yesterday's broadcast. Uh, Trump has been telling African-Americans, for example, that the majority of them are living in poverty and that they have no jobs. Who knew? Uh, but uh, in any event, while he's trying to uh, tell them their life is terrible and that's why they should vote for Donald Trump, um, and that, you know, yesterday he even said that many of them live in areas that are worse than war zones that U.S. troops are fighting in overseas. Trump once again repeated that uh, version, at least a version of his dog whistle during a campaign rally in Akron on Monday night. You've got to get every one of your friends. You've got to get every one of your family. You've got to get everybody to go out and watch and go out and vote. And when I say watch, you know what I'm talking about, oh. right? You know what I'm talking about. You know. I think you got to go out and you got to watch. Yeah. You know what he's talking about. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You got to Why would he say that? You know what I'm talking about. He would say that because it is meant to be a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. In fact, uh, if the Republicans were to organize an effort uh, the Republican Party or an agent of the Republican Party were to organize an effort that was specifically based on race to challenge voters at the polls. It would be in violation. It would be illegal. It would be in violation of a federal consent decree that they signed back in 1983 after they were caught doing exactly that and after they promised they would not ever do that again. Of course, they do it all the time. They get caught doing it all the time. Uh, but that's what Trump is uh, talking about, at least in my opinion, when he says, uh, you know what I'm talking about, right? And also in the opinion of Rick Hassan, the, uh, who's rather conservative on this, but U.S. Uh, UC Irvine uh, election law professor, he says that this is, quote, code for look out for black and brown people cheating. He recommends that legal action should be taken to ensure that the Trump campaign does not organize any efforts at voter intimidation. And even if this is just puffing, he says, there's the real danger that Trump supporters can go rogue when they hear that sort of thing. Election protection efforts, he writes, will be more important than they have been in decades, especially with the loss of federal observers. That's right. The DOJ will not be sending out the thousands of observers that it used to send out to elections around the country, thanks to the Supreme Court gutting the Voting Rights Act in 2013. So, yeah, we're going to have quite a mess coming up. In any event, while uh, just 11 percent of Trump supporters are very confident that votes nationally will be counted accurately. According to that same Pew survey, just 49% of Clinton supporters are very confident that votes will be counted accurately. A larger number than uh, those of the Trump supporters, for sure, but, you know, but just 49%, not even a bare majority of Clinton supporters have confidence in our electoral system that it's actually going to reflect the will of the voters. Unfortunately, uh, given the 
unoverseeable electronic voting and counting systems that we use in this country. There is good reason for that, even as I take no joy in saying so. But that's one of the reasons I've been covering this issue for so long, trying to let people know about the concerns of our terrible voting and tabulation system while debunking the nonsense about polling place impersonation that the GOP pretends to give a damn about in their effort to uh, to keep certain people away from the polls. But here's the deal. You can't see what's going on inside a computer, whether it's a touchscreen, voting machine, uh, or even a paper ballot system that counts votes with an optical scan computer. This year, I'm happy to say, finally, a lot more people are becoming concerned about that, including the federal government, the Democratic Party, which I'm happy to say recently reached out to me directly about their concerns after the DNC email hacks and so forth, and apparently even some Republicans are concerned about it. Good. But you know who can see inside computers? Sort of? The NSA. And their ability to find vulnerabilities in computer systems while keeping those vulnerabilities a secret, keeping them to themselves so only they can exploit them for their own purposes good or bad, that may also be putting Americans at risk. A man who understands all of these risks and the continuing risks to hackable voting systems in the U.S. because he was one of the first ones to hack one of them, joins us next. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Last week, as the LA Times discussed in a weekend op-ed, a cryptic online group that calls itself the Shadow Brokers claimed that it had purloined a cache of cyber burglary tools from a little-known but highly skilled hacking operation dubbed the Equation Group. The Shadow Brokers made some of the tools available for free online, but announced that it would auction off the rest with a goal of more than half a billion dollars. The incident has made some very nervous uh, people, apparently, at the Equation Group. The incident has made some very nervous, apparently, as the Equation Group is believed to be a contractor for or even an arm of the National Security Agency. In other words, Group of the United States' own, very own, cyber thieves. These tools, believed to have previously been in the control of the NSA, reveal previously unknown security flaws in firewalls used to safeguard corporate and government computer networks. 
The Shadow Brokers episode, the L.A. Times notes, raises an important question about how the government uses what it learns about cyber vulnerabilities. When the feds uncover a new weakness in a firewall, an operating system, or a browser that allows them to hack into a network or a device, should they keep that knowledge to themselves for later use or share it with the companies putting out the susceptible products? The Times goes on to write that it is, quote, in their opinion, appalling to think that the NSA may be scouring computer networking equipment, much of it made by U.S. companies, for hidden security holes that it then keeps secret for its own purposes. In the meantime, both separately and somehow related, last week, uh, according to Reuters, the U.S. government offered to help states protect the November 8 election from hacking or other tampering. In the face of allegations made by Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump, they say uh, that the system is, quote, rigged and easy to manipulate. Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson told state officials in a phone call last week that federal cybersecurity experts could scan for vulnerabilities in their voting systems and provide other resources to help protect against infiltration. Trump has questioned the integrity of U.S. election systems in recent weeks, but his allegations have been vague and unsubstantiated, Reuters notes. And uh, frankly, largely they have been nonsense about people voting multiple times, uh, though some of his surrogates have in fact discussed the much more threatening notion of hacked voting systems. Though even they don't seem to understand the greatest threat is not necessarily from outside hackers, but from insiders who have unrestricted access to both electronic voting systems and paper ballot-based electronic uh, op scanners and tabulators and so forth. Uh, during the week before Johnson's call with state officials, he said that the Obama administration's Department of Homeland Security is now considering whether to designate certain election systems as, quote, critical infrastructure. That would enable extra cybersecurity protections from the federal government for election systems. As Reuters notes, hackers can wreak havoc on an election in myriad ways, from hijacking a candidate's website to hacking voting machines or deleting or changing election records entirely. There's vital interest in our election process, Jay Johnson said at a Christian Science Monitor breakfast this uh, past month. We're actively thinking about the election and cybersecurity right now. Oh, they're, they're thinking about it right now? No rush. Okay. Uh, these machines, as I've been reporting uh, for more than a decade on this show and at Bradblog.com, have long ago been exposed as vulnerable to tampering, not to mention simple programming failure. Uh, as we've also discussed over the years, with, with vote counts not matching paper ballot results in many cases, at least in cases when anybody actually bothers to compare them after the election. In his phone call to state officials, Jay Johnson encouraged them to comply with federal cyber recommendations, such as making sure electronic voting machines are not connected to the Internet while voting is taking place, the department said. But is that way too little, way too late? I can confirm, by the way, that the Democratic Party itself is now very concerned about the possibility of both manipulation via hacking and the perception of, of manipulation, whether it happens or not. I've, I've heard from some of the folks at the DNC who have taken over there since Debbie Wasserman Schultz and others were pushed out in the wake of the DNC email hacking scandal. And frankly, uh, they're in a panic to try to figure out what, if anything, can be done between now and November 8th. 
And I've had to give them my informed opinion that, no, there's in truth, there's not a hell of a lot that can actually be done this late in the game, at least when it comes to changing or patching these systems. Um, it's one of the reasons why I've spent so many years reporting on this stuff, trying to, uh, you know, help folks understand the threat so they could do something about it, not 80 days before an election, but when there is actually time to change the system uh, to move to transparent, overseeable systems. Joining me now to talk about all of this is someone well familiar with how easy these electronic voting and tabulation systems are to game. He knows because he was one of the first ones to do it years ago, back when he purchased several Sequoia AVC Advantage voting machines. Those are direct recording electronic. Uh, we call them DREs. They're sort of like touchscreen style machines. They are still in use in places like New Jersey, Pennsylvania and elsewhere. He purchased those machines for about $82 a piece on the Internet way back when. Those same machines, said to be closely guarded proprietary systems, at least back then, were sold to New Jersey just a few years earlier for about $10,000 a piece. He was able to hack into them, uh, into their hardware and software, in pretty much no time flat, changing the systems in such a way that votes could be flipped without triggering notice by the public or even election officials. Andrew Appel is one of several folks from the Princeton University crew who has hacked darn near every voting system out there, it seems, over the past decade, including the first one publicly known to have been uh, uh, publicly hacked, which was a D-Bold touchscreen system that I first helped get to the folks at Princeton and which they subsequently found could be hacked in oh, about a minute's time with a virus that could flip votes and pass itself from machine to machine with little possibility of detection. And yes, we are still using those style of voting systems across in several states across the country as well. Professor Appel is the Eugene Higgins Professor of Computer Science at Princeton University, and he wrote about all of these fine messes late last week in a two-part series at Princeton's Freedom to Tinker blog, and it's quite remarkable, as much as I've been reporting on uh, Andrew Appel over these years at bradblog.com and, and on this show, that I've never had him on until today. Andrew Appel, welcome to the broadcast, sir. I'm glad to be on. Uh, great to have you here. All right, now, I remember... Uh, I want to first uh, talk about this, uh, these NSA uh, vulnerabilities, or at least these vulnerabilities that are believed to have been found by the NSA, not in the voting systems, but in our, uh, you know, the, the software that we use, the hardware and software and firewalls and so forth that we basically use to run the Internet. Uh, I remember when the uh, Heartbleed vulnerability was discovered a few years ago, which was basically a huge hole in open source software that, uh, made systems which use that vulnerable to attack. It feels like we've got uh, a similar concern this time, except these are commercial systems. A am I correct? And the NSA apparently knew about these vulnerabilities, but did not let the well the public or the uh, the actual companies uh, who whose uh, hardware and software had these vulnerabilities did not even let them know about it. Do I understand that correctly? Yes, you do. And I should point out that just becomes, because something's open source doesn't mean it's not commercial. Mm -hmm. That okay. more and more of our commercial infrastructure is also running on open source software, including the kind of software that was vulnerable to the Heartbleed vulnerability. Okay. 
And but here's the issue, yeah. and here's what's going on with the NSA um, vulnerability hoarding. Um, all the kinds of software we rely on to do our life these days, the Linux operating system or Windows or the Macintosh operating system or the iOS or Android operating systems, and then all the applications that run on these operating systems like your banking applications and your email applications, all of these are software, and when people write software, sometimes it has bugs in it. And some of these software bugs lead to security vulnerabilities that allow attackers you know, on the Internet mm-hmm. to hack into your system and you know, access your bank accounts or read your email. So it's important to get these bugs fixed. And for many years now, uh, the major software makers such as, you know, Microsoft and Adobe and so on, Mm -hmm. um, have ways for uh, researchers and others uh, out in the world who discover bugs in their software, and specifically security bugs, to report them to the companies so that the companies can fix them. And, you know, it would be great if people out there uh, knew how to produce bug-free software from the beginning, and that's what I do in some of my research, but... Until that time, you know, uh, we should at least promptly report the bugs to the companies so they can fix them and send updates. And But this now, is, yeah, I was going to say, this is what the NSA has decidedly not been doing, according to these reports? That's right. Well, the NSA likes to spy on people. That's their job, is to spy on mm-hmm. uh, other countries um, and to spy on, you know, the spy networks and the governments of other countries and the military of other companies. That's what they were put into place to do. And one of the ways they like to do that is to um, find these bugs that lead to vulnerabilities in computer systems of um, other countries' networks and use them to get into those networks and read the email of our adversaries. Of course, the NSA these days spends a lot of its time trying to read any email that goes in or out of the United States or across any network in the United States. It's, uh, the NSA is spying on us almost as much as they're spying on our adversaries, but that's why they like to find these vulnerabilities and use them. Mm-hmm. Of course, it does them no good in that respect if they find a vulnerability and then tell the vendor about it, you know, Microsoft or Apple or Google or whoever, so that it gets fixed. If the vulnerability gets fixed, then the NSA can't use it anymore to spy on people. But here's the point. If the U.S. government and its intelligence agencies really want to defend us against Internet hackers, to improve the national security of the United States by improving the security of its businesses and citizens and private organizations Mm -hmm. in their banking, in their emails, and in their commerce, they should encourage all these vendors to fix all these security bugs as soon as they occur. Uh, They should not hoard the vulnerabilities in the hope that the NSA can use them to spy on everybody else. Mm -hmm. And with the assumption the NSA is implicitly making is that nobody else will be able to find these bugs and vulnerabilities and use them to spy on us and do banking transactions in our name uh, and read our emails. So that's the problem. The NSA finds these vulnerabilities and what it could do to most improve our security is not use these vulnerabilities to spy on the Russians, but to get our own systems fixed 
so the Chinese and the Russians can't spy on the individuals, nonprofits, and businesses of the United States. But it seems like there has been a, a specific affirmative decision over the years by our spy agencies to at least keep some of these uh, uh, these vulnerabilities to themselves. That seems like it makes all of us more vulnerable, which frankly, uh, is why I was thinking about you over the past few days and these voting machines where you finally have got, uh, you know, a bunch of folks in the mainstream corporate media after all of these years are finally suddenly concerned uh, about voting systems. Well, that's good. Uh, and so is apparently the Department of, uh, of Homeland Security. That's good. But it seems like uh, so many of the things that, that you've discovered, uh, Andrew Appel, and, and your colleagues at Princeton over the years uh, are problems that have been known uh, for now many years. And I was struck by uh, Jay Johnson's uh, quote. He's the uh, head of uh, Homeland Security, who said, we're actively thinking about election and cybersecurity right now. And, of course, the first thing in my mind was, well, right now, you know, what's taken you so long? They're talking about uh, looking at these uh, systems as critical infrastructure. We're now 90 days out from or less than that uh, out from the election. So there's not a lot that can be done, it seems to me. But you uh, go on in your piece at... Uh, at uh, Freedom to Tinker to say that this question about whether these systems should be critical infrastructure or not betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of how computer security really works at all. Uh, how so? What do you mean by that? Well, if you want to protect us in our banking mm -hmm. and in our use of our own computers, in the routers we purchase for our homes to do our Wi-Fi, then uh, you can protect us by... Uh, assuring that the software and hardware we purchase from, you know, the companies in the United States that sell that stuff uh, is as reliable and bug-free as possible. And the way the NSA can do that, or the Department of Homeland Security, um, is by reporting those bugs promptly to the makers of that hardware and software so they get fixed. And I should say, my guess is that the accumulation of these vulnerabilities is more inside the NSA than inside the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, I think that's where the budget and the people are that do that kind of thing. So that they have discovered... Security is not something that you can just patch on by some sort of critical security infrastructure squad that, you know, <laughs> descends and surrounds your house with the National Guard. It's got to be built into all the software we buy. And that software is the same software that is used actually in voting. People are, are shocked when they learn that, oh, uh, these voting uh, machines, the tabulators, uh, the you know, both the touchscreen systems and the, uh, the tabulator systems, the optical scan systems, they all use, or many of them, actually use Windows software. And people are often alarmed at that. Uh, but has the government, Andrew, since you've been uh, tinkering with these machines for so many years successfully, shouldn't the government have been warning states about these systems long ago, about the vulnerabilities that folks like you and the others at Princeton have, have discovered? The, a lot of the election administration systems used by you know, election officials to prepare the ballots and add up the votes from all the precincts. Mm -hmm. They're just laptop computers, you know, running Windows mm -hmm. or the like. And so um, vulnerabilities in Windows um, 
you know, unpatched old versions of Microsoft Windows um, uh, mean that from time to time when those machines are connected to the Internet, mm-hmm. and they are, how do you, else do you get all the votes into them, um, they're vulnerable to attack by hackers. Mm-hmm. The good news is that, to a large extent, those functions of adding up the votes from all the precincts um, are ones that you don't have to completely trust the computer for, because any citizen or political party can take the reports of the votes from each precinct and add them up themselves and see if it agrees with the county clerk's totals Mm -hmm. for those precincts. So uh, I think we should focus as much on how can we trust the results of the the election, even if the computers have been hacked, uh, as on how can we absolutely prevent the computers from ever being hacked? Because no matter what you do, you can't absolutely prevent the computers from ever being hacked. Right. But you talk about uh, you know taking the totals from the uh, from the precincts and making sure that they all add up across the county, across the state. But how do we get those totals at the precincts? Aren't we counting on in in the case of of your state of New Jersey, we're counting on uh, those same touchscreen systems that you've been able to, to to hack. Other places where there are paper ballots available, those paper ballots are generally counted by computer optical scan systems, are those the totals that we're supposed to rely on, the ones that came from those faulty computers in the first place? You know, about 15 years ago, a lot of states started switching their voting systems over to these paperless touchscreen voting machines. Mm -hmm. And many computer scientists, including myself, uh, started to explain to policymakers that this is not a way we can trust to add up the votes, that if you have a touchscreen computer and the voter comes up and presses this button to vote for this candidate, then how do you know that that vote will be reported accurately at the end of the, of the night mm-hmm. by the computer program inside the touchscreen machine? Right. The thing about a computer is that whoever got to install the software in it most recently is the one that gets to decide what kind of results are reported. Right. So what the computer scientists urged the states to do is to switch to some kind of technology that you could uh, recount or audit the results of the election without having to trust any computer program. And the technology that we ended up recommending was optical scan paper ballots. That is, mm-hmm. the voter marks a ballot, you know, fill in, fill in the bubble next to the name of your candidates and feed the paper ballot into an optical scan computer right there at the polling place. Now, the advantage to that technology is you get your results right as soon as the uh, polling uh, place, uh, as election's over, mm-hmm. right? The polls close, and you can the optical scan machine prints out uh, the vote totals immediately. Mm-hmm. Now, that optical scan machine is just a computer, too. Right. And it can be hacked, or it can cheat, but you have a pile of the actual paper ballots marked by the voters sitting in the ballot box underneath the optical scan machine. So you can recount or audit the results of that election. Uh, and uh, be confident to the result, no matter what the computer says. And the good news is that most of the states listened to this advice and switched away from uh, paperless touchscreen machines to optical scan paper ballots. Mm -hmm. You mentioned at the beginning of the introduction that I was able to buy some used 
ABC Advantage voting machines Mm -hmm. on the Internet for $82 a piece. Well, the reason I was able to buy them is that North Carolina uh, declared them as surplus. They had switched away from touchscreen machines that you can't trust over to optical scan machines that you can trust. And now, in North Carolina, and in about 40 states of the United States, they use optical scan paper ballots. You don't have to worry so much about whether the computers are hacked. There's a way to verify the results of the election based on the paper ballots that the voters actually marked. It's only in another six or ten states, such as New Jersey or Louisiana, where they use uh, touchscreen computers Mm -hmm. that um, you can't really trust the results that come out of the computer at the close of the polls on election night. But here's the problem, uh, Andrew. Uh, you, you you reference optical scan systems that you can trust. I've been looking for a system that I, I can trust for years, and I've seen even with these optical scan systems, I know you're familiar with the uh, the HBO documentary Hacking a, a Democracy, where Harry Hursty was able to hack one of those optical scan machines. I've seen uh, elections around the country where the optical scan computers announced the wrong winner, uh, you know, losers to be winners and vice versa. Um, It seems that there's a lot of people counting on post-election audits or so-called spot checks of those paper ballots. But that doesn't happen, it seems to me. It doesn't regularly happen after elections. When people are done, when the results have been announced on election night, um, you know, when audits are done after the election and errors are found, People don't deal with them. They sort of paper them over and move on. Is that not a concern of yours, even with the optical scan systems? It's certainly a concern. About half the states that use optical scan systems actually have a law or statute in place that calls for a random audit. Mm -hmm. That is, you pick a few of these ballot boxes and you recount by hand the optical scan ballots to Mm -hmm. make sure they match exactly uh, the count that the OpScan computer gave you. And if you find they don't match, then that's a sign that there might be election hacking going on, and you can expand to a much broader hand recount of the ballots. So in those states, it does automatically happen that you have an audit or a spot check, and you can be reasonably confident that if there was computer hacking in the OpScan machines, you'll detect it, and not only just detect it, you'll be able to correct it by a recount of the actual ballots that the voters marked. Now, it would be a really good thing if more and more states uh, that use optical scan balloting uh, instituted these kinds of automatic audits or spot checks of the optical scan ballots. And it would be even better if the remaining few states that are using touchscreen machines would switch over to optical scan ballots so that we could trust these elections, even if the computers might be hacked. And and I'm uh, 100% with you when it comes to the uh, moving to uh, hand-marked paper ballots, uh, even if they're optically scanned. But I live in one of those states. I live out here in California, one of those states that is supposed to have these post-election audits. And I can tell you, they don't happen. Uh, they, they don't work. Uh, I, I understand in theory that we should be doing that. Um, but I, I feel like we're not. And after all of these years... I feel like we're looking at the idea of post-election audits with op-scan ballots, and they don't happen. 
begging the question of why we don't just hand count them in the first place on election night. That's a question for another day, though. I've got just a minute or two left with uh, Andrew Appel of uh, Princeton University. Andrew, uh, you write in your blog, um, it's not just voting machines and tabulators that could be at risk on election day. Uh, more and more states are now relying on electronic poll books. What are the vulnerabilities there as you see it for uh, November 8th and, and beyond, and elections beyond? Well, when you go into the polling place uh, and you give your name and address to the election worker there, mm-hmm. they look you up in a poll book uh, to make sure that you're registered in that precinct. And in the old days, and in most states now, uh, even today, that poll book is an actual paper book. Mm-hmm. Um, printed out from the database of registered voters for that precinct. Um, a lot of jurisdictions are now using electronic poll books, which is basically a little tablet computer uh, in which they look up your name to make sure you're registered there. Now, if there's a malfunction with the electronic poll book, that can lead to a voter not being allowed to vote when they're legitimately registered. Um, so, And that malfunction might happen if the uh, system is hacked, or it might be just because there's uh, errors or uh, flaws in the poll book. Now, the thing about that kind of um, election problem is that it doesn't happen undetected. When a voter comes to the polling place and is not allowed to vote, that voter notices. And if it happens on a large scale, it'll be noticed on a large scale. So uh, the good news is that this kind of hack, you can't get away with it undetected. Mm-hmm. The bad news is that if it does happen, uh, if there's hacking that causes electronic poll books to malfunction in a big way, then it will certainly uh, cause a lot of chaos and confusion in those places where it happens, and that would be bad news. That would be bad news indeed. I've uh, Before I let you go, I've been, uh, like I, I said at the top here, I've been contacted from some folks at the DNC uh, since the, con- since the uh, uh, Democratic Convention, after the hacks of the DNC email and so forth, asking me, Brad, what can be done before the November 8 election to safeguard it? And I've had to sort of share the bad news as I see it, that there's not really a whole hell of a lot that can be done at this point, that it's too late uh, in many cases to, to change or even patch the electronic voting and tabulation systems at this point. That's uh, why I report on this stuff all year long, not just right before the elections. Uh, do you see the matter similarly? Are there measures that can be taken between uh, between now and November 8? Or are we mm, kind of screwed come what may uh, this November? I think uh, there are President? measures that are worth taking Good. Uh, right now. You're right that it's too late to change what software we're using inside the voting system. Uh, or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But in the cases that I wrote about in part one of my blog article of how we as citizens or how the political parties can um, assess the results of the election to uh, determine whether the results are added up correctly, there are many things that that we can do. Uh, If we have witnesses in each polling place just Mm -hmm. at the close of the polls when the totals for that precinct are reported, Mm -hmm. then we can add up the precincts independently and make sure that there is, you know, no hacking has affected the ability of the central vote tabulators to add up the different precincts. So what we can do before the election is twofold. One is that we can organize as members of political parties or as independent citizen watchdog groups not to sit there all day during the election, which could interfere with the voting process, but just to watch the 
you know, results reported at the close of the polls. Mm -hmm. And second, we can encourage election administrators across the country to support that effort by being transparent about uh, how the results per precinct are reported and how any citizen can add up the precinct totals themselves to get the general election total. So I think those are things that uh, where positive changes could be made between now and the election. Well, uh, and that, of course, uh, means people need to step up. They need to be there when the polls close on election night, as I've, I've long uh, argued. You know, take, bring your cell phones, take pictures of those poll tapes and so forth that do print out uh, totals from those electronic systems, whether they're touchscreens or optical scan systems. Uh, but boy, uh, Andrew, I, I hope that the work that you've done for so long at, uh, at Princeton and with your colleagues there, I hope that at some point... Uh, jurisdictions around the country really understand the uh, vulnerabilities that are out there because I, I still think they don't understand it. Now they're concerned about foreign hackers, but, uh, you know, a lot of people, the public, are rightly concerned about insiders, insider, uh, you know, election manipulation uh, by election administrators and, and so forth, the folks that service these machines. Those are all vulnerabilities as well, it seems to me. Uh, is, is that a concern of yours as well, by the way, the, the insider? Uh, I think election? if you look back 50 years or 100 years in this country or 150 years, most election fraud has been conducted by insiders, you know, who have access to how the votes get added up. I would say this, you know, after the 2000 election in which the hanging chads showed how bad a technology punch card balloting was, mm -hmm. the Congress of the United States outlawed punch card balloting. And after this election, where there's so much concern about can we trust touchscreen voting machines, it would be highly appropriate after the election for the Congress of the United States to outlaw paperless touchscreen voting machines. I'm with you on that. Uh, professor Andrew W. Appel, Eugene Higgins, professor of computer science at Princeton University. You can check out his work at Freedom to Tinker. That's freedom-to-tinker.com on all of this and much more. And, of course, go to bradblog.com. Search for that name. You'll find a lot of stuff. Uh, professor, really appreciate your time today. And uh, fingers are crossed. Let's see how it goes this November. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, let's hope for a smooth election this November. Yes, please. What could possibly go wrong? All right, a quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen in the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. That music can mean only one thing, <laughs> Desi Doyen. That means uh, you are up. Uh, welcome back to the broadcast. But uh, Desi Doyen is up with our latest Green News report. National media fiddle as Louisiana drowns. Media criticized for their slow response to Louisiana flood disaster. You are going to see clusters, which is what we're seeing here now. Louisiana floods could accelerate spread of the Zika virus, plus... A tale of two Arctics. A tribe is forced to move while luxury cruises are just getting started. It is the best of times. It is the worst of times. 
All of those tales and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Nobody knows, you know, clean coal, look at what's happening with China. They're not cleaning it. No, they're not cleaning it. I don't even know what to say. This is your Green News Report. Believe me, they're not cleaning it. Okay, Desi Doyen, over the past week between the uh, presidential election madness and the Summer Olympics, it seems that there were no mainstream media left, I guess, to cover what was going on in Louisiana. This amazing flooding that, to your credit, you were on from day one. And you're not the only one who's noticed. But we'll get to that in a moment. First, President Obama traveled to Baton Rouge, Louisiana on Tuesday to personally view the destruction wrought by a biblical deluge and record floods that have now killed at least 13 people and damaged now more than 60,000 homes. The American Red Cross called the disaster the most impactful since Superstorm Sandy. More than 100,000 people have now registered for federal disaster aid. Now, despite multiple advanced warnings issued by the National Weather Service, the corporate media really didn't cover those warnings and was slow to respond to the aftermath, raising the question of whether naming that land-based storm like a hurricane might have helped focus the media's attention amid this weird election year. On CNN's Reliable Sources, host Brian Stelter criticized the corporate media for ignoring not only the disaster, but also for not connecting the climate change dots. It's got to be connected to climate change. Uh, it's got to be pointed out that there is evidence that these are happening more often due to climate change and are more extreme due to climate change. And if we're not there in the early stages, it's harder to cover that later. So it takes naming a storm. What the hell kind of media do we have? You have to give it a name, a cute name, before they'll bother to notice it and report on it? That's a good question. Man, I kind of thought, you know, the worst flooding in hundreds of years and tens of thousands of people dislocated would do it, but I guess not. The Louisiana flood disaster is already fodder for the 2016 presidential campaign. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards had asked the president and other politicians to not visit right away so as not to divert resources away from the response. But right-wing media was already criticizing President Obama for not arriving sooner, and Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump showed up anyway to hand out supplies from the back of a donated truck for a few minutes. Of course he did. The criticism here being that, oh, George W. Bush was criticized for not going right down to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina struck in 2005. And I guess right-wing media thinks the American public has a very short memory. The criticism was not that George W. Bush didn't go down there right away. It was that the federal government botched the response. Yeah, in a big way. So, a heck of a job, right-wing media. The recovery in these disasters continues long after the cameras are gone, and now the National Institutes of Health has added a new threat to that aftermath. So much standing water in Louisiana could accelerate the spread of mosquitoes carrying the Zika virus across the Gulf states. Here's NIH Director Anthony Fauci in an interview with ABC This Week. I would not be surprised if we see cases in Texas and Louisiana, particularly now where you have the situation with flooding in Louisiana. There's going to be a lot of problems 
getting rid of standing water. Finally, a study in contrast from the rapidly warming Arctic, where sea ice this year is headed for yet another record low annual extent. The land beneath the island village of Shishmaref, Alaska, is dangerous. Shishmaref. Oh, okay. It's dangerously eroding because of the loss of protective sea ice and melting permafrost below, thanks to the rise in global temperatures. Last week, in a town-wide vote, the hundred or so Inupiat Eskimo residents of Shishmaref officially voted to leave, to relocate their entire village to the mainland, and will seek federal emergency funds to do so. Mm. But it's a party for those who can afford it. A mega cruise ship has now set sail, the first ever mega luxury liner to navigate the once fabled Northwest Passage, which is now open because of that melting sea ice. Tickets started at $22,000 each, not including a mandatory $50,000 insurance policy to cover emergency evacuation in the remote region, a possibility that is so monumentally difficult, the U.S. Coast Guard has been running emergency search and rescue drills in Nome, Alaska, to be ready, just in case. So another upside of climate change. For the rich, sure. There you go. Glass half full, Desi Doyen. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. Soon we'll be making another run. See? Glass half full. See? No problem. Uh, now, I will say, we've got just a very quick second. I will say, it does. Uh, when we were recording the Green News Report, something that has never happened before, you actually had to stop when you got to the Alaskan village, uh, whose name I won't even try to say here. Shishmaref. Oh, well done. <laughs> uh, because uh, I think you were just kind of overcome with emotion about it. Yeah, that. it's very moving to me that these people um, who have uh, lived there for 400 some odd years at least uh, must now move. And yeah. it's because of the uh, it's it's just it's sad. It's very sad. It is indeed. Uh, but remember, global warming is a hoax. We'll try to let those <laughs> people know. Uh, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Andrew Appel, the professor of computer science at Princeton University, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated, as are uh, those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make sure we can try to continue to do what it is, whatever the hell it is that we do do here. Uh, if you missed any portion of today's program, download it at bradblog.com for free or over at iTunes. Or we hope you'll give us a good review, make it easier for everyone else to find us as well. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. Always good to hear from you folks, uh, good or bad or other otherwise. You can also find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Yeah.